Well, thank you, congregation, for doing such a wonderful job singing this morning. We know the Lord is praised when we lift our voices singing like Christians. And thank you, Pastor Laramie, for that song that you sang for us. I'm glad that uh, those vocal lessons I gave you this week are really paying off. I invite you once again to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. We come this morning to the end of our long journey through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've been following this story, this big narrative for many weeks now, and and we all know how a good story is supposed to end, right? They all lived happily ever after. That's, that's how stories are supposed to end. That's what we've been taught. Did you know that for a thousand years in English literature, that phrase has been used in some fashion? Uh, it's used so often that now it's cliche. You would never end a story that way, that they all lived happily ever after. Yet we're all looking for that happy ending, are we not? We're looking for the enemy to be defeated. We're looking for those insurmountable challenges to be overcome. We're looking for the prince to find his princess or vice versa. We're looking for that happy ending that they all lived happily ever after. Well, if you've read ahead, or even if you can tell uh, from my comments, that that's not the way that the book of Nehemiah ends. But first, we must get the text before us and and see what the Lord would say to us this morning through His Word. So if you're able, once again, we're going to begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 13. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 4 through the end of the chapter. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God, and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. 
Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not Give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for themselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the end of this journey through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Would you once again give us ears to hear? We pray that your word would fall on good soil this morning and that would bring in a crop of a hundredfold. Would you bless us through the preaching of your word? Would you grow our understanding of you through the preaching of your word? Would you convict us of our sins? Would you draw us to repentance? And would we serve you more faithfully because of the preaching of your word? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you heard the reading of Nehemiah 13, you understand that Nehemiah is no fairy tale ending. Someone has said it's like a splash of cold water in the face. It's not the ending that we would have hoped for. Wouldn't it have been great if this story ended last week, at the end of chapter 12? 
Everything was so joyful. Everything was going so well. And we saw, I, I would include verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 in that narrative from last week, that it all goes together on that day that they're reading the Word and they're obeying the Word. That's a good way for the story to end. But it's not how it actually ends. They've been revived by the Word of God. They were continuing to walk in it. That would have been a great ending of the story. We might begin to ask ourselves, how could they have fallen so far. Just by way of reminder, think back of all the things we've seen God doing for His people throughout this journey in Ezra and Nehemiah. Back at the very beginning in chapter 1, God stirred up the heart of King Cyrus, and God stirred up the hearts of His people. He worked mightily, and He brought them back into the land, and He's been at work. He has led them to rebuild the temple, and they've rebuilt the walls around the, the city of Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 5 of Ezra that the eyes of their God was on the elders of the Jews. The people knew that when they completed the work of the temple in chapter 6, that they knew that God is the one who had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Nehemiah, when he comes on the scene, he knows that the good hand of my God was upon me. Even in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, when they completed the work on the wall, the enemies around them perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Clearly, God has been at work among His people, Israel. He's been restoring and rebuilding them. And, and we might ask, how could they fall so far, so fast? But of course, we know this happens all the time. Some of you have seen this in your own lives, perhaps in the life of this church or other churches you know. This happens so often during seasons of revival. God works mightily. He, he stirs up His people by the power of His gospel. He rebuilds us according to His word. But far too quickly, our fervor falters. Our faith fails. We don't live happily ever after. There are three things I need you to do this morning as we conclude our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to consider their failures and heed the warning and look for comfort in Christ. First, we're going to consider their failures working our way through the majority of the text. The first failure you heard there in verses uh, 4 through 14 is the forsaking of the temple. The forsaking of the temple. Now, you've heard it said that while the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, that's what's going on here. You, you heard it told in the story that Nehemiah has gone back to serve uh, King Artaxerxes there in Susa. We don't know how long he's been gone. We know just the journey itself would take two to three months one way. And so he's back serving the king. And uh, as he's gone, uh, it seems like all of the work that he's done for these 12 years is being undone. In chapter 1, you remember, Nehemiah heard about the trouble that was going on in Jerusalem. But now at the end of the book, he comes back. He sees it with his own eyes. While Nehemiah was back in Susa, and while he's gone, the enemy has quickly been at work. You heard the name of that enemy we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah the Ammonite. Remember, the Ammonites are not part of the people of God. So this is clear by his heritage that Tobiah is not supporting the work of God. It's also clear by his hatred of Nehemiah and the others that he's opposed to the work of God. We saw that from day one. Tobiah is the one who taunted them that even as they were going to rebuild the wall, that a fox would just knock it over. 
That's the guy who said that. And Tobiah and Sanballat, they were very angry every step of the way. As the work continued, they were angry. They were taunting along the way. You remember they even hired a false prophet to lie about Nehemiah. But the last we heard of Tobiah was back at the end of chapter 6. You may remember that, the writing campaign, the letter writing. All these letters were going around saying, Tobiah, he's such a nice guy. Why can't we just all get along? He's so nice. Nehemiah, don't you see how nice Tobiah is? And you remember what the text said, many were bound by oath to him. They had a connection to him. They had to say those things. Many of them had uh, married into his family, and Tobiah had married into a prominent family, and so they're all interconnected. We saw that Tobiah's son did likewise. He married into a prominent family. So you understand, Tobiah the Ammonite is just a scheming, maneuvering, political weasel. But now, the moment that Nehemiah is out of town, he begins to work again. Tobiah goes to his relative, Eliashib, so he can get a toehold in the temple. He begins to ask Eliashib. Remember, that's one of those priests we saw on that list last week. Y'all were so excited to see that list. He was the third one on the list. Eliashib, the high priest. And Tobiah goes to him and says, hey, I want a room in the temple. Now, we're not told exactly why. We can speculate. But we are told how we should think about this. How should we think about this guy, Tobiah the Ammonite, taking up room and board there in the temple? Well, look at verse 7. When Nehemiah comes back, he says, I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. It's evil. Now, you might be tempted to think, oh, that's just bad blood between Nehemiah and Tobiah. They just don't like each other. No, this is the wrong thing. It should never have been done. It's evil. Why? Well, look at verse 5. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments. They were given for the contributions of the priests. So you understand that that phrase from Malachi, which was written not long after this, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Well, the storehouse is empty because nobody's bringing them in. So now there's room in the temple and Tobiah says, hey, I want that room. I want to move in there. They're forsaking the temple. And do you remember what they promised back in chapter 10? That was one of the things they said they wouldn't do. Do you remember that wonderful cycle, the the great revival that God brought, chapter 8? They were hearing God's word read. Chapter 9, they were confessing their sins because they saw themselves in light of who God is according to His Word. Chapter 10, they said, we repent, we renew our covenant, we're going to live differently. And in chapter 10, in verse 30, they said, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. How'd that turn out? Verse 31, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. How'd that work out? They, they gave this long speech about how they would provide for the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and the priests and, and for the work of the temple. And if you remember at the end of chapter 10, it climaxed by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. How'd that work out? They're forsaking the promises that they've made to God by actively doing the wrong thing, but they're also forsaking the temple by failing to do the right thing. Look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. 
You understand? They, they show up to worship God and the temple is closed. Nobody's there. The yard hasn't been mowed. The bills haven't been paid. Nothing has been done because the people failed to keep their promises. They didn't bring in their tithes and offerings. They didn't do what they said they would do. And so the priests, they have families to feed. Their children are hungry. And so they leave the temple and they go to working in the field so that they can take care of their family because the people failed to keep the promises that they said they would make. You understand worship is coming to a screeching halt because they've broken their promises to God. So it's very clear what they said they would do. We will not forsake. We will not neglect the house of our God. They're doing it. They're doing the complete opposite of what they promised to do. Well, how does Nehemiah respond to all of this, even just this first failure with regards to the temple? Look at verse 11. All of his progress seems to be disappearing so rapidly. So verse 11 says, So I confronted the officials. I showed up and I asked them the hard questions. Oh, Nehemiah, don't you know you can't confront people when they sin? People won't tolerate that these days. You can't confront anybody over their sin. You've just got to play nice. We've only got to accentuate the positive. It's far easier to be a leader when you aren't willing to have those hard conversations with people. But Nehemiah confronts the situation head on. Did you notice that's how he dealt with Tobiah there in verses 8 and 9, that fancy apartment of Tobiah? He shows up and he quickly, he deliberately begins throwing all of Tobiah's stuff out of the temple. He doesn't wait for Tobiah to show up and do it. He doesn't call Eliashib and say, you need to fix this problem. No, this can't wait. Nehemiah himself goes in and there, out goes the bed frame. Out goes the table. Out goes the couch. Everything that Tobiah has brought in must be removed. And Nehemiah orders that not just that chamber be cleansed, but did you notice it was in the plural, all the chambers around it. Everything this wicked, evil man has touched must be cleansed. As to those ties that need to be brought into the storehouse, Nehemiah handles that problem by appointing treasurers who are considered reliable there in verse 13. It was their duty to distribute all of this to the brothers. So notice that he deals with problems head on, he cleanses out the bad, and he refills it with good. After he threw out all of Tobiah's stuff, he brings in the things that are supposed to be in there. The tithes, the offerings, all of those things are brought back in. He throws out the bad and he fills it up with the good. You know, of course, that's a, a picture of the Christian life. That's what we're supposed to be doing. When we recognize the bad things, the Bible tells us to put off certain things and then put on certain things. We get rid of the bad things in life and we put on the good things in life. The things that that God is working in us, the fruit of the Spirit, all of these spiritual things we're supposed to be doing. You may recognize this morning that you failed to keep certain promises to God that you've made. You've returned to the old way of life, to the sins that so easily ensnare you. God's will for you is to throw those sins out. Get rid of them today. Throw them out with a vengeance. Don't wait. Throw it all out. Just like Nehemiah threw the belongings, the furniture of Tobiah out of the temple. And we're to refill that space with the things the Spirit is doing, the the promises, the, the character that we're supposed to put on that we see in the New Testament. You understand that's not legalism. That's holiness. That's what God has called us to do. If only we saw the severity of our sins the same way that Nehemiah sees the evil, 
the severity of their failure in forsaking the temple. Where there's a second failure beginning there in verse 15, and it's the profaning of the Sabbath. Verse 15, Nehemiah sees these Israelites working on the Sabbath. We all know that's not what they're supposed to do. We've heard the Ten Commandments taught this morning in one of our classes, but you understand that. They're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. They're, they're treading wine presses. They're bringing in heaps of grain, and they're loading them on donkeys. This is common work. It's noble work. There's nothing wrong with the work, but it's just done at the wrong time. They're bringing it into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Not just the people of Judah, but did you notice in verse 16 there, the Tyrians, the people of Tyre, another country, they were well-known merchants of their day. They didn't have a problem with breaking the Ten Commandments because they didn't care about the Ten Commandments. They were not part of the people of God, so uh, they're very happy to bring their fish to market. The people of Tyre were fish merchants, and they brought their fish to the fish gate. They were ready to make a dollar. But God's people who know better, they know that they're supposed to be a light to the nations. Instead, the nations are leading them into darkness. It's much the same in the church today. Spurgeon asked 150 years ago, he said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. That's true across the board, across our nation of churches today. Nehemiah sees this problem there in the people of Israel, and do you hear his shock? He says this isn't just going on throughout the nation, it's happening even in Jerusalem itself. The end of verse 16, he's exclaiming, he's like, can you believe it? It's happening in Jerusalem, the holy city, on the Sabbath day. So what does he do? Verse 17, once again, he confronts sin head on. I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah reminds them of the failures of their forefathers. He says, do you not remember how we got in this situation in the first place? We've been over this time and time again, and you want to do it once more? You understand God has given them the Sabbath as a gift, a day for rest and for worship, a day set apart for God. A day to show them that they really do believe that God can meet their needs, even if they take a day off from work. To show to a watching world that Almighty God is more important than the Almighty Dollar. They've broken their promises. They're profaning the Sabbath. And there in verses 19 and 22 through 22, he again deals with the situation and he says, look, we're stopping this now. We're closing the gates before the Sabbath starts, and you're not reopening the gates until after the Sabbath is over. And you understand, word takes a little time to make its way to the merchants. And some of them think, oh, this will pass. They might be steadfast for one or two Sabbaths, but they'll get lax. Perhaps they're thinking they can make deals through the windows of the walls of the city. They're still showing up. And did you notice what Nehemiah says? Look there in verse 21. He's already warned them. Verse 21, I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's how serious this is. Nehemiah says, I'm going to pick a fight. Y'all better get out of here and 
now. And we understand the occasions are probably rare in our day and time when it's time for the pastors to take up fisticuffs. That's how serious sin is. Nehemiah is willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to say, this will stop and it will stop now. He's stopping the profaning of the Sabbath. But there's a third failure of the people, and it's the failure of polluting marriage. You see, Nehemiah not only saw that the people were corrupting this good gift of the Sabbath, but they were also corrupting the good gift of marriage. Has this not been the besetting sin of Israel since day one? From the very early times of their history, from the beginning of their nation, Abraham's marrying multiple wives, his offspring are marrying multiple wives, they're marrying people outside of the faith. And we've seen this time and time again throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, but I must stress once again, it has nothing to do with ethnicity or skin color. It has everything to do with their faith, that they will be drawn away from worshiping the one true and living God by marrying someone outside of the faith. That's been addressed multiple times, but but Nehemiah points them to another problem perhaps they haven't thought about, the impact that it will have on the next generation. He says that there's, there's a problem, verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So these Jewish men are marrying women outside the faith and the children are spending the majority of time with their mothers. Their mothers are not believers. They're not teaching them the Hebrew language. You understand it's different in our time. We can get a translation of the Bible in many languages, not every language on the face of the earth. But in that day of time, if you want to know who God is, you better speak Hebrew. You better be able to understand the language so that you can understand what the priests are saying as they're reading the Hebrew Scriptures. And these children are being brought up. They don't know the language. They don't even understand the basic words about God. It reminds us we cannot worship a God that we do not know. We're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but there's a great need to make sure that the Bible is translated into the language of the people so that they can actually understand it for themselves and hear the saving gospel of Christ. Well, Nehemiah is greatly concerned, and he offers them an example, a reminder of how serious this sin is. He points them to Solomon. Good King Solomon, notice verses 26 and 27. Did not even Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Solomon started so well. Who ever had it as good as Solomon? He's born into rich prosperity, but he's born into a a home that understands and knows who God is. Of course, his father David has sinned, but Solomon understands the truth about God. Solomon even prays for wisdom, and God pours out untold wisdom on him, just as God poured out untold riches upon Solomon. Solomon's heart was led astray because he married foreign women, women who did not worship the one true and living God. It could happen to Solomon. It's happened in the past. Judah, why do you not understand? Why are you doing this? Shall we listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Every time, every one of these failures, Nehemiah shows them this is evil. This is not a little slip-up. This isn't just something that can be swept under the rug. This matters. Going back on these promises to God matter. 
They're actually all evil. Well, he's been warning them about the past, the, the sin of past generations, and he's warning them now about how it's going to happen in future generations. Here's what's going to happen to your children, your grandchildren. And he gives a specific example there in verses 28 and 29. He speaks about the grandson of the high priest Eliashib. You understand, sin has climbed even to the highest ranks of leadership in Israel. Even into the high priest home, this sin has taken place because his grand, Eliashib's grandson has married the daughter of Sanballat. That's one of those names of the enemies of the people of God we saw earlier in the book. And you ask yourself, how could this happen? How could the grandson so easily break this clear commandment of God? I'll tell you why. Because grandson saw granddaddy break the law of God so easily. Granddaddy, you didn't really believe what you said about honoring the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength because I saw how you rented out that room to Tobiah. I saw how you didn't care about the purity of the temple. You said you believed one thing, Granddaddy, but it really didn't mean a whole lot to your life when the going got rough. And so if you break in this law, I'll break this one. I'll marry who I want to. That's exactly how it happens. Some of you have seen this in your own lives, in your own families. Looking at this from a pastor's point of view, I see the guilt of the high priest because he's enabling the sins of the people. Eliashib should have stood firm and said, no, you have no place in the temple of God, Tobiah. That's not what he did. He compromised. We see all throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, these bad examples of bad shepherds corrupting the people, abusing the people, devouring the people. You understand the cowardice of Eliashib enabled the sin of Tobiah. And the compromise of Eliashib enabled the sin of his grandson. There's a word for all of us here in this text. In our lives and in our homes, we must take sin seriously. We must deal with sin head on. Sin is crouching at the door. Satan is roaring about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How does Nehemiah deal with this situation? He says, therefore, I chased him from me. Just like with the cleansing of the room and the temple, he gets rid of this sin. And we must root out the sins in our lives. It reminds me of one of the verses we saw this past week in Bible study on Tuesday night in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. We discussed Tuesday night how there are certain things we run away from and certain things we run to, but we're not in it alone. Did you notice it says, along with all who call on the name of the Lord? There's a need for the community of the local church. There's a purity that is supposed to be found in the local church, and when any of us fall short as the body of Christ, we call one another to repentance, not because any of us are perfect, but because God is holy and we love one another and we want to see each other grow in Christ. Someone once complained to a pastor. He was calling his congregation to repent. Someone went to him and said, pastors, your sermons keep hitting like a hammer. And the pastor told the person, stop living your life like a nail. If you feel the sermon is hitting you like a hammer as we consider their failures, we must also heed the warning. Heed the warning, that, that was all the first part, but trust me, we'll pick up speed. The second part, the second thing I need you to do is to heed the warning. 
1 Corinthians 10.12 tells us that let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I must warn you, saints, you're in a dangerous position this morning. It's dangerous because you think you're safe. We think these failures of Nehemiah 13 have nothing to do with us today. You may think you're just sitting here learning a few Bible facts and Bible trivia, and pretty soon you're going to go home on your normal Sunday routine. You're listening to the failures of the Jews here in Nehemiah 13. You think, I would never do that. Won't you? Peter traveled with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, yet he denied our Lord three times saying, I never knew him. Our brother Paul wrestled with sin and, and cried out in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good things I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. If Peter and Paul faced failure, what makes you think you want? You may have, have made promises to God this year and have utterly failed. It's October. How's the Bible reading plan going? How's your prayer life? How about those promises that you made to God? You've made them in the past and you said this year is going to be different. And once again, you failed. Make no mistake, you're not alone. Your pastor's right there with you. We all fail in our own strength. But if we don't heed the warning of God's Word, we will somehow think that we are immune, that it would never happen to us. We need to heed this warning personally, but we also must heed this warning corporately, corporately as a church. I can't help but think about the church in Ephesus. You look at the, the narrative of Acts, you see what God did there in the church at, at Ephesus as the gospel was preached and the gospel worked mightily there. The gospel even impacted the economy of Ephesus just like it did right here in Jerusalem with these fishmongers. And Paul labored there in that one church, that one city, for three years. Can you imagine that? The teaching of Paul for three years? Here's what he said in Acts 20. As he was getting ready to leave, he had a warning for the pastors, the people of that church. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul was working among this church for three years, but he says, as soon as I'm gone, I know this work is going to be start being undone. There will be false teachers who will come in behind me. Paul must be experiencing much of what Nehemiah was feeling in this day. And you would think, okay, Paul warned them, they probably took care of it. But we have two letters to Pastor Timothy. First and second Timothy, what is Paul warning Timothy about? There are going to be false teachers who come in. You must stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit and pass it along to other faithful men. You think, okay, Timothy took care of it. Everything's fine. Eventually, we can stop being so on the alert. Until you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus himself says, 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's good. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. That's good. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So far, so good. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This one thing I hold against you, Jesus says, you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When you follow the church at Ephesus throughout the New Testament, it's a warning to every church. There's a lot of good things that have happened. Paul has founded the church. Timothy has pastored the church. Church history tells us that the Apostle John also served there at some point in time as pastor of the church. Who's got it better than that? Paul, Timothy, and John have served as your pastors, but Jesus says you have left your first love. We must heed the warning as the body of Christ. Remember from where you have fallen. Ezra and Nehemiah have given us a good opportunity to remember what God has done in the past. An opportunity to repent. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. You see, the danger of reading Ezra and Nehemiah like it's some leadership code in the Bible that if we would just do X, Y, and Z that we would all live happily ever after, then we'll have great revival, just like we saw in in chapters 8, 9, and 10. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're praying for. But we need the reality of chapter 13. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's the truth. We may do everything right and still fail. We may have the best of intentions and still fail. We may rebuild according to the book and still fail. We need a greater reformer than even Nehemiah. We've considered their failures. We've heeded their warning. but We need a better ending than that. We must look to Christ. The final thing we do in this text is look for comfort in Christ. You may have noticed in the text that Nehemiah kept praying over and over. We've seen throughout the book he's a man of prayer. Sometimes it's long prayers, but often he just peppers in prayers in his normal daily life. In chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 14, he said, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22 at the end, he says, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And the book ends with a prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. You see, this is the end of Nehemiah's story. It ends with a prayer. It doesn't end with they all lived happily ever after. It actually ends with Nehemiah saying, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know if the people will remember me for good, but you, O Lord, please remember me for my good, for my benefit, for my prospering, for my well-being. It's a plea for mercy and grace and favor in God's sight. Nehemiah's prayers are prayers for closure. 
He's entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. He can't entrust himself to the people. Clearly, they will let him down. Nehemiah places his faith not in the fickle, but in the only one who is truly faithful. You know, in leading the people of God and pastoring, you, you don't get to see the final product very often. It's not like construction. You can see the house when it's done, and you can say the work is done, and I'm done, and I'm walking away. It's not even like teaching school where you bring students along through maybe one grade, multiple grades, but you see them graduate. You see their progress. You see the final product. Pastoring's not like that. Nehemiah doesn't get to see the end of the story. He doesn't get to see the final product. In fact, when, it's, when you think of the history of the Old Testament, this is the end of the story. You have more prophecies, you have chronicles, but, but this is the final historical narrative. This is the last scene in the story. The story's got to end better than this. Nehemiah's done everything that he could for the people of God. He's left it all on the field. He was willing to spend and be spent for the work of God. But Nehemiah was not enough. The people needed an even greater one to cleanse the temple. This is a good opportunity for us to think about what Nehemiah has done here, particularly in verse 25. We've seen him confront sin earlier in the other two failures, but verse 25, it really gets our attention. It says, I confronted them and cursed them. By the way, that's not cussing. That's bringing down the curses that they promised that they would receive when they didn't keep the promises of God. So he confronts them, he curses them, he beats some of them, and he pulls out their hair. My goodness. You wouldn't believe how much time I spent reading people talking back and forth, wondering, is Nehemiah sinning right here? I don't know, but I can't foresee the day that I'm pulling out anybody's hair or punching them. But I will say that when it comes to the the perfect one, when we move forward in the story about 450 years, we see one who does perfectly cleanse the temple. And there's no question of whether or not he sins. Jesus Christ perfectly, without sin, cleanses the temple. He flips the tables. He runs the money changers out of the temple. And he also comes announcing that all who are weary and heavy laden will find their rest, their perfect Sabbath rest in him. And we know that Jesus will be lifted up on a Roman cross right outside the city, right outside these rebuilt walls, and he will be lifted up between two thieves for your sins and for mine. And do you remember what one thief said to Jesus? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. For some of you, that needs to be your prayer this morning. For all who cast themselves on the mercy of God will not be cast out. If you're tired of this cycle of sin in your life, just like we see this cycle here in Nehemiah, know that true freedom is found only in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Victory over sin is not found in merely developing new habits. It's not accomplished by looking deep within ourselves to find the answer. It's accomplished by looking to Christ, for He has done it all. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Pray like Nehemiah, Lord, remember me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Don't leave today without speaking to myself or Pastor Laramie about this gospel that saves even the vilest of sinners. But saints, this is the same gospel message that saved you. God is still faithful 
to break the power of canceled sin in your life. He's faithful to keep His promises to make you more and more like Jesus through the power of His Spirit. He is faithful. You understand the story does have a better ending. Our story does not end outside those rebuilt walls outside of Jerusalem at the foot of the cross. Our story doesn't end at the empty tomb. No, we fast forward all the way to the end of the story. We move past all of our current events, our current day. We look to the end and we see Revelation 21. We see a holy city once again. Revelation 21 Beginning in verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Saints, does this encourage you? Does it impact how you live? Are you living in light of the end of the story, the truly happy ending For all who are in Christ. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying about Jerusalem. We need to pray for the current events going on in Jerusalem. We're going to do that in just a moment, just as we did last week. But we're looking forward and toward the final Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem where only then will we worship with complete uninterrupted joy. Only then will our failures end because Christ has made us whole. He's made us complete, perfect, permanently. This is our hope, our confident reliance of heaven. Jerusalem, our happy home, where all who are in Christ will truly live happily ever after. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you encouraged by your word. And I pray that you would plant in us a longing for home. In light of everything that we've learned according to your word, may we live in light of the end. Would you stir in our hearts a desire for heaven and to live lives in accordance with the grace that you've given us? We long for the day when our sorrows will have an end, when we will see the joys that we've longed for, that we've been promised in your word. Father, we long for the day when there will be no more grief, no more cares, no more toil. But best of all, we will see you face to face. Would you plant that desire deep in us? And even as we wait, we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you stand as we sing?